Well, it was a hot day under the Middle Eastern sun. Three ladies were sauntering down a dusty path with all of their possessions with them. They were all widows. Sorrow filled their heart. Hopelessness plagued their souls. And all three of these ladies, their husbands had died, they had no children, and the future seemed bleak. They were traveling from Moab to Israel, and halfway through that trip, the oldest, the the mother-in-law, stopped. And the mother-in-law, Naomi, said to the other two ladies, her daughters-in-law, to go back to Moab. to to get remarried, to have children there, to live like a Moabite, which means to worship their false gods. And one of the daughters-in-law agreed, and she returned back to Moab. But the other one, Ruth, she wanted to remain with Naomi, with her mother-in-law. Ruth chose to, to stay, to remain, to abide with Naomi, to go to Israel, to possibly never be married, but she believed that's where God had her. You see, Ruth believed that her life was divinely appointed by God, and so she went with Naomi back to Israel. And she believed God had an assignment for her to serve Naomi, to to live for God in that land, because she believed that God was in charge of her life. If you know the story of Ruth, God poured out his grace through her obedient faith. But when we are in difficult situations, it's easy to want to run, isn't it? We want to get out of that situation. We want to try to flee and figure out how we can get away from it. Sometimes our current situation is, is so clouded that we can't see God's purpose in our current context. Sometimes we think to ourselves, if if this could just change in my life, then I could be a better Christian. If this could just change in my life, then life would be a lot better for me. And sometimes we're tricked to believe that my relationship with God would be better if my circumstances changed. And maybe like Ruth, maybe there's a a single girl and you think, I really want to get married. And so you, you think, well, there's this guy, and even though he's an unbeliever, Maybe it's a way to get out of my current situation. Or maybe you have a job and it's a very difficult job and there's there's people around you who are cursing and and blaspheming God and you think, you know, if I just worked with other Christians, I could be a better Christian. Or or maybe you're married, your spouse is an unbeliever and you think, maybe maybe I should just divorce this person and, and marry a Christian. Or maybe you're living in the liberal land of California. And you think, man, it would be so much easier to live for Jesus in a red state. Those are all tricks that Satan deceives us with to to think that our environment, the change of our circumstances will give me satisfaction, will give me joy, will give me peace with God. But it's not true. God wants you to know, from our text today, God wants you to know that joy and satisfaction and peace with God is found in a relationship with Him. It's not found in a change of your circumstances. It's found with a change of your heart. 
And what God is doing is he's using the circumstances of your life to change your heart so you can know him more, so you can love and trust him more. In our text, God's call for each Christian is not to find a way to flee your circumstance, although there are times when there are exceptions to that. But in this context here, he wants us to be content, to to depend upon him, to serve God within my current situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I really think this whole chapter teaches us, us that because your life has been divinely appointed, you must glorify and serve God in that assignment. In fact, look at what I think is the key verse in verse 17. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. If you're not there, turn there. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 I think is the heart of this passage. The scripture says, only let each person lead the life, live the life. That's a command. Live the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. Six times in this chapter, we find this word remain. We find the word abide, same word. Meno, it's a Greek word. In fact, you can see two of these examples. Look down in verse 20. Look down in verse 20. Verse 20 reads, each one should remain. Over and over in this text, you find that. Remain in the condition in which he was called. Look at verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain. Notice that, with God. And so the call of this text is to remain with God. That we have different scenarios, different Uh, situations of life outlined here in this text that are difficult. I mean, really situations where people say, I want to get out of this. We looked at last week, verses 2 through 7, and that dealt with the strain of marriage, particularly with intimacy. And then we looked at verses 6 through 9, that that addressed the difficulties that widows and widowers have. Today, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12, and that deals with two Christians who are married to each other, but they are considering divorce. And then we see in verses 12 through 16, this text ministers to the the believer who's married to an unbeliever. And then we're going to see later on, verses 21 through 24 are going to deal with those who have this cultural baggage or some who are even in a very difficult job. I mean, probably the most difficult job ever is explained there, and that's a slave. And then from verse 25 on, those who are single. In all these situation, God calls us to look at life from the divine perspective, to see God's sovereignty in our life. And he wants us to serve him where he places us. Today, we're going to mostly focus on verses 12 through 24. It speaks about those who are married, but I think the principles here apply to all of us, whether you're a child or a teen or a single no matter what situation of life you are. And so I would ask that as we pray and ask God to apply this text to our life, that you would pray in your heart and say, God, show me how I can live your word and believe you. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 24. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? If you have a Bible, please follow along with me. If you don't, Open one up on your phone. I'm going to read aloud 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verses 12 through actually 17. I think I said 24, but through 17. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. I'm sorry, verse 10. I don't know why I started there. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let, him, or let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for everyone in this room, you will take this text of scripture and Lord, you will teach us your truth so we can live by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout this chapter, Paul presents different difficult situations that a Christian might find himself in or herself in and that they want to get out of. But the question here he, he really poses in this text is how do you glorify God as one who's been bought by the Lord, as one who has been purchased? You are not your own. So how do you glorify God in your body? And particularly in this text, starting in verse 10, in a difficult marriage. And we're going to see throughout this text, as we saw last week, that I think the answer is the same for each category of people. And so how do you glorify God in your body in a difficult marriage? Well, abide by faith in that divinely appointed role. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In these verses, Paul restated Jesus' teaching in regard to marriage, kind of does it in the negative. But you can see in verse 10 there, he says, I give this char charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus clearly taught on marriage. Jesus made no mistake. I mean, he was very clear about what he believed marriage should be and was intended by God. In fact, would you look at this, this with me in Matthew chapter 19? Go to Matthew chapter 19, and I want you to see Jesus' clear teaching on God's word. I thought, you know, we, we go to this text a lot. But I thought, you know, it's probably an important one for us to go to again. Because in Matthew chapter 19 here, we see the original design for marriage. 
We see the manufacturer's plans right here. I mean, we see the, the, the store model. This is what marriage is supposed to be. So Jesus says marriage is God's idea. Look at Matthew 19, verse 4. Have you not read, Jesus says. In other words, this is what the scripture teaches. So the scripture teaches this. Jesus teaches this. He, that's God, the triune God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. So marriage is to be between a male and a female. And then he defined marriage as an official public covenant to leave your parents and to be united as one. Look at verse 5. And said, he quotes Genesis again, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and these and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice that word separate. That's the same Greek word you find over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Jesus taught here that when a husband and wife make a covenant together in marriage, God is the one who divinely binds, bonds that marriage together. Notice what he says. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is like wallpaper glued to a wall. Have you ever tried to remove wallpaper, especially the old wallpaper from a wall? It's a mess, isn't it? I mean, it very rarely cleanly comes off. You're trying to rip it, and as you're ripping that, you're ripping the wall, you're ripping the wallpaper. And honestly, friends, this is what divorce is like. It hurts people's lives. It hurts children. It damages. It tears. So Jesus wanted to protect marriage, and so he addressed faithfulness in marriage. Look down at verse 9. Jesus cherished faithfulness in marriage, and so he said in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus cherished faithfulness in marriage so much so that he condemned divorce. And he only allowed it here if the marriage covenant was broken by unfaithfulness, by the unfaithfulness of sexual immorality. And that's what he says there, except for sexual immorality. Now, before we talk about this, I think we need to acknowledge that many of us, if not most of us in this room, have been affected by divorce. This can be a painful topic, but that, I want you to know that is not my intent. I don't think that's the intent of the scripture here. Some of you have been divorced. For, for, for those that I know, it was not your fault. I can remember a day I was sitting in my house and I was reading from my computer, and as I was reading, I read about a friend, a man that I knew, and he married the preacher's daughter. They had a beautiful child. It was like this perfect family that they had, and he was a firefighter, and it was like, what a wonderful life. Then I was reading about him, and, and they got a divorce. And I read that she chose to go live a life as a lesbian. And, I, and my heart hurt for him. My heart hurt for his child, and their child, I should say. And my heart hurt for her, for her choice to do that. That was sad. 
And as, as I read that, and as I talked to some of my friends about it, we recognized that the divorce was not his fault, right? It was not his fault. And, and therefore, does, divorce should not mark someone for life, right? Sometimes people think like that, that the divorce kind of puts this mark of Cain upon someone, and now, now for the rest of their life, they have to have this mark upon them, and that's wrong. It's a wrong view. God gives grace to those who have been wronged in divorce, and God gives grace to those, he offers grace, I should say, he offers grace to those who did the wrong in divorce, right? And, and we should have a heart of grace to both parties. That's how we should approach, I think, this topic here. That's the spirit I really want to come out of today is that, is that we want to have grace. And so would you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? I think texts like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is this is not a passage to to denounce anyone who's been divorced. So don't take it that way, please. I think this is a passage to warn believers who are married to be faithful in their marriage, to, to warn believers who are married to not be unfaithful by seeking a divorce. And so look at verse 10. He's speaking to the married. And particularly here, he's speaking to two Christians who are married to each other. And so to, verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife, so this is a, a Christian wife, should not separate from her husband, her Christian husband. Now, let me acknowledge, too, that our culture approves and even encourages divorce, doesn't it? According to the CDC, which I'm not certain why they keep these statistics, but the CDC says the average marriage in America lasts 82 years. In the eroding of faithfulness in marriage, it's destroying our culture, isn't it? It's just destroying our society. But frankly, friends, it's destroying the church. It's destroying families. It's destroying children. And so those of us who are consecrated to God, those of us who have been made holy by Jesus Christ, those of us bought with the price and who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not go down this road of separation and divorce. It's not what God's will is for us. So this text is about two Christians who are ready to split up. Two Christians who have about had it. They're done. Maybe they wish for a separation. Maybe they've even talked about divorce. But God says it's wrong. It's wrong to really even think that way it's unfaithful to your marriage covenant. But, but you might say, but, but the romance isn't there, Pastor Ben. Right? Or this isn't the person I married. Or she's not as young as she once was. You know, She's got some wrinkles now. Or he's not as buff as he once was. I didn't marry that belly. I married the... And so, so you sometimes can think that, well, that way. But the vow that you made together before God was to be together for life. And so we need to keep our covenant before the Lord. Last summer we went to, I went to a camp and I spoke and they had a lake. It was a beautiful lake. It was clean. It was clear. You know, some lakes aren't that way. But this one was clean. It was clear. It was cool. It was refreshing. It was fun to jump in and, and paddle. And we did the, even did the blob, you know, where you sit in the end and someone jumps on it and you fly in the air. And, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. And then there was this little inlet that, you know, I was going to cut across. And I thought it'd be fun just to jump in the water and then wade across and then go to the other side. And so I jumped in the inlet 
and I sank in the mud. And instantly, I was afraid because I went up to almost my waist in the mud. You know, and you're sinking down, and I'm just imagining myself like the Princess Bride. You know, I'm going under, and I'm trying to grab a vine or something, and it was scary. And I, I was ready to get out of that muck and that mire. You know, I think that's where sometimes a lot of marriages where they are, you know, you go, you go to the, the lake, if you want to say, of marriage, and it's, you're expecting to be cool and refreshing and enjoyable, and, and maybe it is for a while, but then, but then life happens. And, and you find yourself stuck in the muck of ongoing arguments. You're sinking in the mire of bitterness and contention, and you just want to get out, not necessarily just even of the muck. You just want to get out of the lake. You want to get out of the marriage. It's like, I just want to get out of here. I'm done with this. And so God has a word for us in, in verse 10, in verse 11, look at verse 10. For the Christian wife, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband. And, and in verse 11, notice the, for the Christian husband, God has a word for you. At the very end of verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's saying, husbands, don't quit. Wives, don't quit. Abide by faith in that role that I've put you in. Only let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which the Lord has called him. In other words, it's, it's remember God is sovereign and he has placed you here for a reason. And why? Why has God put you in that role? So that you can serve him there. Serve God in that responsibility. In fact, look at verse number 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Be reconciled to her husband. That's the desire right there. The word reconciled is an imperative. It's a command. This is a word in the Greek that is used to speak of a person changing something so that a broken relationship can be restored. It could be a king pardons a former opponent it could be that uh, a lender forgives debt. And the idea there is that they are removing the obstacles that's between them so that there can be a reconciliation. And so reconciliation is one person changing something to open up the door to restore the relationship. And isn't that what we want in marriage? Isn't that what you want in your relationship? You want closeness. I mean, remember that day that you stood on the altar and you looked into that person's eyes and you promised to have and to hold, right? You, you desired intimacy. You, you did that kiss, whether it was a good one or a bad one. You had the kiss, right? And you wanted oneness. That's what you want. But then life happened. Now maybe you are enemies. Maybe you're distant. Maybe your relationship is strained. And so what should you do? What is our natural response? I got to get out of this. Now, what does God call us to do? Be reconciled. And what confused me about this word when I studied it is that it's in the passive voice. Like, how do you passively seek reconciliation? That, that, was, that was not making sense to me. One resource helped me out and explained it this way. It explained that the passive here calls us to remove any barriers that we have put up that has caused division. It's the idea that it's, it's not the idea that we are to fight to try to win, to fight to be reconciled. You know, I'm going to prove 
I'm right. I'm going to force that person to submit. I'm going to make sure they know that they're wrong and I'm right. And that's how I'm going to reconcile it. No, this is the idea that I'm going to surrender my rights. I'm not going to try to prove I'm right. I'm going to surrender my rights so we can be reconciled. You can't make someone reconcile with you. That's kind of like a duh, right? But you can't make someone reconcile with you. All you can do is do your part to open the door of grace so they can walk through and be reconciled with you. Right? If I come up to you and I want to shake your hand and you want to shake my hand, I can't make you shake my hand. I mean, maybe some little kids, maybe I could, but I would have to force you to do it. But I can't make you shake my hand. All I can do is what? Put my hand out like that. Put a smile on my face. Have a good heart. <laughs> and put my hand out. I can only do what I can do. And then you have to follow up with that. I think that's what he's calling us to do here. Unfortunately, many couples, many marriages, and honestly, I, I, we can extend this on to many relationships. They want to try to win. They want to defeat the other person. They fight to win instead of surrendering to reconcile. I mean, imagine, imagine two people who are shooting at each other. You know, you have the, the barricades are up and one person's behind their barricade and one person's behind their barricade and they're shooting at each other. They're trying to, to hurt the other person, right? Hurt the other person enough so that they, they can defeat them. They can win. In, in relationships, who actually ever wins that? Like, you ever got out of one of those fights and you're like, yeah, I won. No, that doesn't happen. But imagine one person pushes down their barricade, they drop their weapon, they raise the white flag, and they say, I surrender. What's that person doing? They're surrendering to reconcile. And you know it's hard to shoot a person who's unarmed, isn't it? And that's what he's calling us to do here. We're not called to win. We're called to reconcile. That means humility and grace. That means unconditional love. It doesn't guarantee, listen, it doesn't guarantee there will be reconciliation. It doesn't guarantee that that person's going to humble themselves as well. But if you do your part, it does open the door of grace. It invites other people to walk in and be reconciled. So I think the question we have to ask is what are the barriers that I, have put up in their relationship? What are the weapons that I am using that I need to put down? And it might be for you that you need to put down your verbal weapons, tear down the walls of resentment, humble your heart before God, surrender your rights to be right, and open your arms in unconditional love. Right? Push down the barricade of bitterness Shove, or sh stop shooting your, your wife. Stop, stop shooting your husband with looks of anger. Stop launching the bombs of sarcasm. sarcasm. Stop retreating in silence so you can gain the advantage and, and hurt them and do the most damage. But no, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before them. And again, it doesn't mean that that's going to be their goal. It doesn't mean that even they will ever walk through the door of grace and be reconciled with you but it means that you did what was right before God. And it's even why you do it. You do it because you want to serve God. 
You're not doing it just so there can be reconciliation, or the, hopefully that's the, what happens. But you're doing it because you want to honor God. And so you pray, and you love, you give grace, you speak kindly, you open the door to reconciliation. I think the best illustration of this for us, church, is Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Right? We were enemies. We were born into this world as rebels against God. I mean, we sinned against him. We didn't care about him. The wall of separation was high. It was thick. We were separated from the Lord. God's judgment, was, we deserved his judgment. It was, it was to be poured out upon us. But what happened? Well, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus humbled himself. Why? So that we didn't have that wall between us. So we didn't have to have hell above us. And so Jesus died on the cross he became a man. He suffered unjustly. He took hell. He took sin upon himself because he loved us. Because he wanted us to be reconciled to God. Jesus' death and resurrection opened the door of grace so we could be reconciled to God. I mean, you think about that door that's over there right now. I think it's locked. I hope it's locked. So people can't come in and out of there. And, and that's the idea. We don't want people to go in that room, and we don't want those people to go in this room. Like, it's, it's locked. It's shut. And the door to heaven is shut to the enemies of God. But Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he unlocked the door. He opened the door. And he says, all who want to enter may come. Like, you just have to walk through the door of grace, and you can be reconciled to God. And so you might be in here, and you're without Jesus Christ, and God says, you may come, but you have to turn from your own way, repent of your sin, and believe in Jesus. Say, he's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to the Father. And guess what? When you walk through the door by faith, he reconciles you to God. Isn't that amazing? And what a great illustration for marriage. What a great illustration of reconciliation in marriage. God opened the door for you to come into his family he did so through the sacrifice of his son. Yet why do we close the door of grace to our spouse or to other people that are in our lives? We lock the door and say, you're not going to come in. There won't be reconciliation because you have to say, do it and say it on my terms. But if God unconditionally loved you, why can't we unconditionally love? I mean, since God forgave you, why can't we forgive? And again, I think this can, be this can be applied to marriage. It can be applied to singles. You might be a child in a home, and, and you're having this contention on a regular base with, basis with your parents. And you are firing the weapons of your words and of your sarcasm and of your attitude at them, and there's a wall division between them. And you know what God's calling you to do? Do your part or maybe between your, your siblings, or maybe even with other relationships in the church or other Christian relationships. And with the goal of all these Christian relationships is what? It's to reconcile. Do your part to tear down the barriers and open the door of grace so they can walk through and you can have 
reconciliation. So I guess the question for us is, are you doing your part to put down the weapons, to stop the battle, to open the door of grace so you can reconcile? And then third, he wants us to cautiously consider possible exceptions. Verse number 11, verse 10 first. The wife should not separate from her husband. But notice verse 11. But if she does, if she does gives a scenario where a spouse might find herself separated and divorced. There, there are some situations where that wife does separate. That's actually a synonym for divorce. It could be that there needs to be separation for counseling or for the protection of the family or for a special circumstance. And I would say it's very, very rare. should only be done with a lot of counseling from your pastors and your elders. But again, we're talking about two Christians who are married to each other. And notice the qualifications in verse 11. If she does, if for some reason that happens, she should remain unmarried. And this isn't just the wife. This is also applied to the husband. You see that at the end of verse uh, 11 there. But she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And for Christians married to each other, if there's a separation for some reason, you should remain unmarried and wait and pray and hope for what? For reconciliation. And if God opens that door, if that person desires that, then walk through it. I, I read a story about a Christian husband and wife who were on the brink of divorce. The husband left his wife, but she remained faithful. She prayed for him. And later on, God humbled him, and they reconciled, and he wrote a letter. He actually read a book called Love and Respect. And uh, how many of you have read that book? You read that book? It's a good book to read. Love and respect. And so he wrote the author this testimony about his wife. This is what he said. During the brief separation, my wife maintained a very positive attitude toward me. She never gave up on me. She never gave in to the temptation to downgrade me. When her friends voiced negative opinions about me, she never joined in. Rather, she told them that she believed in me. When other men called to express interest under the guise of being consoling, she refused to open up herself emotionally. In short, she showed me respect when I did not deserve it. Only after reading Love and Respect did the importance of this dawn on me, and I realized her showing me respect during this critical time made all the difference in my eventually returning. And so that's the work that God can do in a relationship like that. The next difficult situation is one where a Christian spouse is married to an unbeliever. And so what should a Christian do in that situation? Well, it's the same as the others. Abide by faith in that divinely appointed role. Look down in verse 12. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. I, not the Lord, was Paul's way of noting that Jesus didn't teach on this specific topic. So Jesus did teach on verses 10 and 11 very clearly, but as far as verses 12 and then down to verse 16, Jesus did not specifically teach. And so he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that I'm going to teach about this. And so this is 
just as inspired as those previous verses, but he wanted to make sure that was clear. And so in verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So here we have a believer and an unbeliever who are married. And the question is, should a believer remain married to an unbeliever? And imagine the scenario. Imagine there's this, this couple that's living in Corinth, and they you know, go to the temple, and they worship Zeus, and they have their other false gods. And then maybe the husband hears the gospel, or maybe the wife hears the gospel, and they, that person comes home, and the other person, they want to keep worshiping Zeus. They have the idols in their, in their house there. But the other spouse that's a believer says, no, I, I don't want to do that. I want to follow Jesus Christ. And you can imagine the tension in the home. And, and maybe that Christian spouse would start thinking, you know, I should be married to an unbeliever. I'm going to divorce this person and get married to a Christian. And, and so what he's saying here is just, he's saying, no, no, that's actually not the response. Remain married to that unbelieving spouse if he or she consents to live with you. Now, this is, this is easy to read here. This is maybe easy to speak about and talk about, but this, my friends, is very difficult to live. And you put yourself in the shoes of an unbelieving wife or husband who has a spouse who is not a believer. I mean, it's like two people that are going to try to run the three-legged race, and they're trying to go in opposite directions. You ever seen children do those three-legged races? I say children because if you're an adult doing it, you know, you might get hurt. Have you ever seen that? And you, know, and, and, and you see those ones that are running together and they go around the circle or go you know, down the line and they're doing a great job. And then you see those others that they don't want to be together <laughs> and they're going in opposite directions. And that's what you, you see in a situation like this. I mean, imagine a wife is Catholic and the husband is a born-again believer. Or imagine a husband is atheist or maybe he's even Muslim and his wife is a believer in Jesus Christ, and so they have different values. And consider the courage that would be needed to stand alone with meekness and grace. I mean, just think about the pressure that person would be under, sometimes the mocking, possible ridicule for their faith. And so I think as a church, it's good for us to know this is a time for us to minister to those people and to love them and pray for them and to come alongside those believing spouses and encourage them. Now, you might be listening to this, and you might be single, and you might be thinking, oh, this is great. So this actually gives me approval to date that unbeliever. I kind of like that guy. I know he's not a follower of Jesus or doesn't love the Lord, but is that what this is teaching here? Absolutely not. This is speaking to someone who is already married. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, you can look at it if you want to. It, it addresses this. In fact, we'll just go to that. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. Look down at verse 39. The scripture says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So shouldn't be broken unless there's a death. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whoever, whoever to whom she wishes. But what? Only... In the Lord. In other words, a, a woman finds herself single. Who should she remarry or who should she marry? Only someone who's a believer. 
So go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. If you are single and you're looking to date or get married, make sure you're looking to date or marry a believer. And so how do you serve God if you are married and you are in a marriage to someone who's an unbeliever? Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. The word holy means set apart. Notice, by you staying in that marriage and by trusting in that difficulty, you can have a sanctifying effect upon that home. However, observe verse 14, what this means. This is not mean, this is not teaching that God sanctifies your spouse and your children because you stay in the marriage. Notice who is the one that is sanctifying the home. What does the text say? The unbelieving husband is made holy. Why? Because of his wife. And the same is for the wife, because of her husband. This does, this does not mean that if you stay married to your unbelieving spouse that they will be saved or that God will save them. It might mean that the gospel does come to them and they believe the gospel, but it doesn't mean that they are saved. God does not save. God does not sanctify because of works that we do. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ that we find salvation, we find cleansing, we are set apart unto God. So, so notice in this text that the, the wife, the, the husband, is the one who, who sanctifies the home. So what's this talking about? It means that when you live a holy life as a believing spouse, it's like you are setting that home and those children and that husband apart unto God. It's like you are living a holy life and God shows up in the home. We could tell stories and give testimonies of God's work in homes like this, right? I mean, sometimes it's an unbelieving husband. He wakes up in the morning. He sees his wife reading her Bible. And, you know, he's gr he gruffs at her. Up early this morning, reading that thing again, right? But he knows why she's doing it. Why? Because she loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or it might be a, a husband who is a believer and he sacrificially loves his wife and she sees Christ in the home. And does a holy life like that affect the home? Absolutely. Living a holy life in an unbelieving home is like, it's like going into a dark room and turning on the LED lights of holiness. It just lights up the whole place. A believing family member can be a bright, holy light for Christ. Look at verse 16. For how do you know, wife? It's possible that God could use your holy life, wife. How do you know whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And isn't it the prayer that that person will know Christ? But then you see in verse 15, a cautious, a cautious possibility, a cautious exemption. Cautiously consider possible exemptions. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, they leave, they divorce, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So let it be as a command to let the unbelieving spouse go. And what does it say after that? In those cases, when that person divorces you, when they leave, you're not enslaved. And Paul is speaking of the bond of marriage. And I believe that this is teaching that if an unbelieving spouse leaves, then the believing spouse is free to remarry. I believe that the Bible teaches that the bond of marriage should only be broken by three things. Number one, by death. We saw that later on in this text, also in Romans chapter 7. By sexual immorality, that's Matthew 5, Matthew 19, verse 9. Or here, by an unbeliever's leaving the relationship. Of course, this is the exception. This is not what we're striving for. It's not what we desire. We desire that person who is an unbeliever to know Jesus Christ. God has placed us where he's placed us on purpose. You are a missionary in your home. I mean, we are all missionaries in Simi Valley or Moor Park or wherever you live. Like, we're missionaries here in California. And we should view our life like that. Like, God divinely appointed me to be here. Why? To serve him. God divinely appointed me to be in this home. Why? To serve him. God divinely appointed me to be in this relationship. Why? So we can serve him. And the lie of Satan is that your Christian life would be better if it just changed. And I'm going to tell you that that is a lie. That is not true. And the longer you live life, the more you realize that. Because you think, well, if I just change this, I'll be a better Christian. And then you realize, I'm the same guy I was over there. Now, you can live for God where you are right now. In fact, this is teaching us that's actually God's plan for you. In fact, actually what he's doing is he's using that difficulty in your life so that you will trust him so that you will depend upon him more. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God put the sentence of death upon us so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. In other words, God put a very difficult thing in Paul's life to the point where he thought, I'm going to die. And he said, why, Lord? Oh, so I'll trust you. So I'll trust that my body will be resurrected someday. And God's great work is not to change your circumstance. And sometimes God does. And sometimes it's necessary for that to happen for different reasons. There are exceptions. But his great work really is this. It's to change our hearts. And what better place to soften our hearts than in the hot sun of difficulty? What better place to make you more like Christ than under the pressure of trials? So... Are you content to serve where God has placed you? And I thought about it like this. Are you more like Christ when you run from your problems? Or are you more like Christ when you endure, when you trust the Lord, when you unconditionally love even though someone doesn't love you? And who knows what God can do with your life? I was thinking about different people like Joseph, and here's Joseph. All the things he went through, betrayed, enslaved, thrown in jail, accused. But he believed what God, that he believed what people meant for evil, God could turn into good. And God used him to save his family and bring about the nation of Israel. 
Esther believed that God had placed her as the queen alongside of the king of Persia. And she believed that God placed her there for what? Such a time like this. And God used her to save her people. Ruth remained with her mother-in-law, believing that God had her there for a mission, not knowing the future, but then God provided a Boaz for her. She married him, and her line became the line of Messiah. Mary was just a regular teenage girl, but then an angel appeared, and she believed that God had appointed her to be the mother of the Messiah, even though it was difficult, even though some probably rejected her. You never know what God can do if you just stay and trust him.